It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the Kriya Yoga Podcast. I'm here once again with our special guest, Dave McGraw from Ireland, a Kriya Yoga teacher, student of Roy Eugene Davis. And today we're going to be talking about um, his new book on the Yamas and the Yamas. Uh, welcome, David. It's great to have you. Great to be here, Ryan. Great to have the opportunity to talk to you and be listened to once again. <laughs> yeah, so tell us, first of all, tell us the, uh, the title of your book. Yeah, so I titled it The Yogi's Way. Um, and if I'm honest, there's probably going to be quite a few of your listeners that know of The Artist's Way. Um, and I had just gifted a friend of mine this, the book, The Artist's Way, um, while I was in the middle of writing The Yogi's Way. And I just thought... Well, if there's a way for artists, there's definitely a way for yogis. So it seemed appropriate just to transfer it and use the yogi's way. This is your first book, correct? It's my first book. Uh, it's first book that is being published online for people to buy. I've done little booklets and things like that before, but this is the first book of this kind. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think it's okay to to uh, to, to use a, another book's name as a uh, uh, as a template. Uh, you know, the book I wrote, "A Course in Tranquility," was kind of based on "A Course in Miracles." <laughs> I, I had suspected, <laughs> yeah. but uh, you know, you just you forget to ask these questions. You know, yeah, yeah. It's like a oh. friend of mine said to me about um, I had written the song before and. Uh, and uh, I played it to him and I said, do you know who that sounds like? Do you know what song that sounds like? And he goes, oh, now I know. Now that you mentioned, I knew it sounded like somebody, but, you know, he picked it out straight away. It was a group that we both liked growing up. Um, but he said, I said, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's a bit too similar. And he goes, that's what rocket, that's what everybody does. You just take somebody else's work and then you just embellish it with your own kind of perspective. It's not, nothing's everything even the way we dress and everything else is kind of just a, an embellishment of others other people's ideas yeah well and especially in in a uh, in a teaching or practice or writing like this i mean we're basically just carrying on a, a tradition uh, to make it appropriate to our time rather so you, you you're doing that with the yamas and the niyamas exactly yeah. yeah yeah and i think the name is fitting also in terms of the yamas and niyamas are very much about how we engage with the world. And when we talk about the yogi's way, I think, you know, we always talk about our spiritual paths and the journey of enlightenment and the waking up. Um, and a lot of it has onus on meditation practice. But I think just talking about the yogi's way gives the idea that there are obstacles and things that come across that we come across and um, just trying to figure out and become skilled at living itself. Um, I think calling it the yogi's way just uh, embodies some of what it means to be practicing the yamas and niyamas. Yeah. yeah. And this is a, this is a pretty in, intense book. Um, but before we get into the, the content so much, I'm curious, um, what inspired you to, to write this book? That's a good question. Um, because I think if I had been asked, you know, earlier on when I started uh, offering instruction in yoga and Kriya Yoga, would I write a book on the yamas and niyamas? I don't think that was had as much 
appeal as writing a book on meditation or you know experiencing higher states of uh, consciousness or whatever it might be mm-hmm. um the yamas and niyamas became more significant to me through life experience um and with you i was talking with you um during the pandemic at the beginning of the pandemic when i was really connecting to the practice um uh once again and especially to be getting back to teaching and um i had i had kind of taken a i wouldn't say stopped um practicing yoga but i had taken a step back from being so fanatical about how i was practicing yoga and when i returned to practicing yoga i realized that sitting and meditating doesn't um kind of clean you out or purify you in the way that yoga is inviting you to purify yourself and while the meditation practice does allow for that self analysis to be to gain greater awareness and to move deeper and to experience deeper states of awareness um it, it doesn't it doesn't do all the work and living itself provides us with a great opportunity to do a lot of the work but uh, how to live is not always uh so easy to to discern when we listen to teachers and hear what they're talking about and uh ten seminars and all the other things that we do to gain insight on how we're supposed to be practicing as yogis um sometimes we can become very fixated on the formal practices and the pranayamas and the asanas and and the actual meditation practice itself using a variety of different techniques but the what the yamas and niyamas offer we can sometimes um just uh scoot over a little bit too quickly and i know for me that was what i did i i i did uh, reflect on the yamas and niyamas i did um kind of review them in terms of how i was living but i don't think i really moved beyond what i had interpreted each yama niyama to mean as in the word itself ahimsa for example meaning non-violence and non-hurting it's very easy just to hear that word and then just write it off for what the word actually means for us as english speakers um but the depth of what the concept of uh, ahimsa actually is we can only really come to grips with when we uh, commit ourselves to uh, just scrutinizing it and analyzing it and pulling it apart in terms of how we're actually living our lives so when you ask me what motivated me to do it what to, what got me to write a book like this or write the book on the yamas and niyamas it was very much about being able to ensure that my practice was helping me to become more skilled at living rather than just becoming skilled at going into a trance state yeah yeah it is it is it is a little more common at least at this this current uh, in this current era for people to be more attracted to uh get the fantastic meditation technique rather than maybe you should be more truthful and content and pure <laughs> yeah 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 but you know there's a reason that the the yamas and the niyamas are at the foundation of the eight limbs of yoga and uh, i'm going to put a question to you that was actually put to me recently to see how you respond to it um someone asked how does how does the yamas and niyamas actually support our meditation practice and vice versa how does the meditation practice also support the yamas and niyamas so i'm curious um do you talk about this in the book and if not could you just give us a little idea of what you think 
well, <laughs> this is why I wrote the book, Ryan. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, in writing the book, it's, it's very challenging to be able to communicate simply the depths of why, how each one supports the other. Um, let me see if I can sum it up as best as I can from what I know and what I experienced. Take, take your, take your 336 page book and just put it into like a minute uh, or two. Yeah. Or uh, yeah, I might even do better. I might get two, two sentences. Um, I think that what we experience in our, me- in our formal practices, uh, primarily meditation practice um, is only as good as we're able to register the more clarified states of awareness that we experience when we return to living our informal lives and engaging with the world. If when we're engaging in the world, those states aren't staying with us, if they're not, uh, if they're becoming clouded over because of engaging with life, it's likely to be as a result of our not adhering to the yamas and niyamas. Um, and so we, we just mentioned, or I mentioned, how the, we can look at the words and the words themselves, are we being truthful? Are we, are we uh, not stealing? And we can look at it on, on a superficial level, but at a very profound level, if we're living in absolute harmony with life or with, you know, with a state of oneness consciousness or in a state of absolute awareness, then the words don't really matter. It's the experience of reality and just accepting everything as it's occurring. And in our meditation practice, we endeavor to do this by progressively letting go of all the attachment to the many, many different layers uh, as we work deeper and deeper uh, within, ultimately arriving at that state of oneness consciousness. But in our day-to-day living, we're endeavoring to live with the same state of oneness consciousness, but uh, we may find ourselves just getting kind of pulled away from it because of impurities. Um, And I think then in our meditation practice, we're not actually going to be able to move into experiencing a deeper state of oneness consciousness or a state of deeper awareness because those impurities still exist and they're still there. They're still impression impressed upon our minds, upon our psyche. And so um, we may feel like we're getting deeper in our practice. We may feel that we're having uh, a magnificent experience, but it's only insofar as we're able to um, imagine how deep we can go. And obviously we can't imagine the ultimate uh, experience because it's, it's only going to be available to us through our practice. Um, I'm not sure. Did that answer it or did that kind of? Um, it gave me some good information, but I'll try to be a little more clear. Uh, but before we do that, uh, the, the, you kept using the word impurity. Yeah. And um, some people might hear that and they kind of take it a little more uh, biblical or Christian. So okay. when, when you use the word impurity in the context of the yamas and niyamas and yoga and meditation, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So one thing I have to admit before I start uh, answering your question is that words can really play games with us. Like it's Mm -hmm. really tricky to, like you just said there, some people in the word impurities has certain connotations that for me, it doesn't hold those connotations. Um, And this is the challenge 
because it, within each of us, a certain word is going to push certain buttons. And for some people, it might be more positive and others not so positive. And that in itself demonstrates the impurities that we have, uh, mm. the fact that we can have these buttons pushed within us. And so you, when we talk about being able to experience a state of clarified conscious awareness, in order to be able to experience that state, we have to overcome all the other stuff that's just preventing us from experiencing that state. I know that Roy Davis used to call this as being the fragmented, our fragmented consciousness, and that we're trying to um, move beyond those obstacles so that we can experience the, the whole nature of consciousness. Um, and so for each individual, it'll be different. But when I'm talking about impurities, I'm talking about all the conditioning all the constructs that we've taken on and we, which have become impressed upon our psyche, upon our minds, be, uh, and which put a kind of filter on how we perceive what's going on around us. And then as a consequence of that, we're unable to just engage with life as it's happening, but instead we engage with our imagined projections of what's happening around us. So when it comes to practicing harmlessness or non-attachment or contentment, you know, the yamas and niyamas, a few of the yamas and niyamas, how does that, why is that beneficial to someone to help them meditate better, to help people understand why those are so important for their meditation practice? Yeah. Um, each of the different principles offered by the yamas and niyamas, when someone's endeavoring to live in accord with each one, or when they're endeavoring to look at how they're living through the magnifying glass of each one of those principles, they're helping to examine their own mind and examine their own psyche and to examine exactly what the conditioning or the constructs of their psyche are. Um, and so by doing that constant reflection, when they move, when they partake in formal practice, when they sit to meditate, there's a capacity to discern with greater ease. Um, there's a capacity to be able to uh, not be bothered by all those constructs or those conditionings. And I think it's important here when we talk about constructs and conditionings, like everything that we're living in our lives is as a consequence of our own imagination. Like it's everything is a projection of uh, causes that are brought about through our own imaginings um, and how you're seeing the world, how I see the world is very different just based on all of these samskaras or based on all of these conditionings and subconscious um, tendencies. And so by taking responsibility for our own living and engaging in life and reflecting on how we're doing it, using the magnifying glass or the scalpel of each of these principles, then we become very or we help ourselves to peel back the layers of each one of these brought about by each one of these conditionings or these constructs in a, in a systematic way. Now I'm not saying it's an easy process, but by, by just uh, committing ourselves to the process in and of itself helps us in our meditation practice. Cause in our meditation practice, we're trying to do the same thing to just cut through everything that we're identifying with so that we can just experience being and existing as awareness. In, and so the two practices um, supplement or complement each other uh, in this way. 
Yeah. yeah. And your book is fairly intensive in regards to how it helps a person kind of dig into that. Um, yeah. so, so how is the book set up? Like, what, what, is, what is the process within the book? Well, the process which is offered in the book is based on a process which I used myself. Um, and that's why I felt comfortable to put together such an intense book <laughs> or to put together a book which was quite rigorous and demanding of the reader. Uh, because you figure if you can do it, anyone can do it, right? <laughs> well, it was more, uh, not that if I could do it, anyone could do it, uh, but rather it, what I got from doing it was so advantageous that I'd like someone else to be able to enjoy that same kind of um, fulfillment. But I also noted in reading, in putting together both book together, because it's put together in a kind of week by week um, way, as in each, uh, in the reader or the one practicing uses, uh, focuses on one of the principles per week. And so it goes on for a long period of time. But I acknowledge that, um, you know, when you put a book out there, uh, or even a teaching or an instruction of any kind, but it's in the hands of another individual, they'll just do what they want with it. You know? <laughs> um, and so I've written the book, you know, some people might even just find it helpful as a reference book. Some people might find that they're going to do it day by day rather than week by week. I understand that it's not necessarily going to be done as I've outlined or intended it to be done, but who's to say that I'm right in saying that it has to be done week by week anyway. It's just that I've laid it out in the way that, worked for me and I felt allowed enough space and time to really go deep with each of the principles. Um, but who's to say what anybody else is going to do <laughs> with the book or the material in it? Yeah. And what is the, like, as an example, you know, do you take one of the, the yamas or the niyamas and then what, and then what, what does the, uh, the reader do? Yeah. So like, okay, it's done in sequences uh, and there are in total 16 sequences. Um, and so in each sequence, it goes through each of the 10 principles. So in each sequence, there's a week given to each of the 10 principles. Um, so in sequence two, for each of the principles, um, there's a reading, which will have to be done daily. It's kind of, it's a short reading, which is read daily. And in, and the reason it's suggested it's read daily is just because it allows the individual to get an understanding of the principle or the yama or niyama from that point of view, from that aspect. And then there's a writing exercise, which is encouraged. Um, and then uh, a reflective exercise. And then there's, there's a supplementary exercise at the end. Now, in each of the sequences, there is a reading and each of the sequences, there's a writing and there's a daily, there's a daily reflection that's, um, uh, that readers are invited to do. And there's also a supplementary exercise. So it, what's different about each of the sequences is, is that um, there's a different reading in each one and they get progressively more um, metaphysical or progressively more um, in, internal in, in what they're suggesting. And the writing becomes more and more uh, towards the reader's being responsible for what they're writing. Uh, initially, it'll be, you know, the first exercise I'm reading here is think about an action of Ahimsa and every day write down seven words, which you feel help to describe the practice of Ahimsa. So it's just a short exercise to help people to kind of bash out what Ahimsa is. But as you move through the book with the sequences, that writing exercise becomes more um, profound or more uh, just, I suppose, it requires a bit more knowledge of the principle itself. 
um, and your relationship to it. And then the daily reflection, that's quite simple. That's just reflecting on your life and how you're engaging your life and just writing, keeping a journal. But then the supplementary exercises, there's a wide range of things. Um, uh, just looking onto sequence, I've got one sequence. Without going too quiet for your listeners. Mm-hmm. On to sequence six. They should be okay with silence. <laughs> they should be. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, like towards the end, I, what I've put in as the, there's actual specific practices, which the individual has to carry out. So um, here's for Svadhyaya in week 81 or yeah, in week 81, observe every desire that arises within you, urging you to carry out a specific action. And before you do it, ask yourself what you're doing the action for. What's the emotion that's driving the desire? And once you've elicited the emotion, again, ask yourself, what do you want to feel that emotion for? What's the purpose of the emotion? And then elicit the reason why and its underlying emotion. And just the idea is to be able to help the individual to work through emotions. So Svadhyaya, we know, is self-study, but just there's many levels to studying the self. But all of them, as you've mentioned, are to facilitate our being able to meditate more deeply, to move into a state of pure conscious awareness. Um, but in our lives, we have to look at how we get caught up with the different identifications. And one of the key things that causes us to get caught up is our emotional drives. Um, and so this exercise is kind of helping people to reflect on that. Um, and then towards the end, I've put in um, supplementary exercises, which lead, there's a QR code, or if it's on Kindle, there's a hyperlink that goes through to audios. Um, and for the, for sequence, I think it's 16, on a sequence 13, there's just um, guided exercises where the individual will be guided through a process which will help them reflect on the specific yama or niyama. And then uh, in a later sequence, there's a guided meditation practice. So all of it is aiming to kind of, you know, as yoga is itself a systematic approach, the whole book is designed to be a systematic approach to help the reader or the um, practitioner to get very, very familiar with how they relate to each of the principles to the point that towards the end of the book, as I experienced, I, I, all of these 10 different principles are in essence one principle, and that is the principle of yoga. That is the principle of oneness consciousness. Um, but it's helpful for us to break them down into 10 individual principles because then we're able to kind of, it's bite-sized, we're able to at least approach it in a different way. But ultimately, I think as Roy used to, our teacher, Roy Davis used to say, uh, a yogi will do these things naturally to the point that they're not even thinking about them. They're not even saying, well, that was non-stealing, that was non-hurting. Um, and I think what I experienced after going through this process myself was just a deeper understanding of really it's uh, being a yogi is just about being one. And it's uh, and the only way we can be one is to remove everything that prevents us from being one, um, and all of the things that prevent us from being one is all the just imaginings and the preferences, um, which could kind of distort our perspective on reality, and that's the idea of the book is to take advantage of each of the principles so as that we can progressively move to just experiencing what's beyond them all. Yeah. I've been told, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've been told that uh, Yogananda used to say that um, 90% of the spiritual path was a psychological battle. And once you get past that, well, then it just kind of takes care of itself. And um, looking at the yams and niyamas, it always occurred to me that if you want to know how psychologically healthy you are, 
well, then just see how well you do the yamas and the niyamas. Yeah. And, and if you can do them well, well, then you're all right. And if you have struggle with them, not, not to, to label anyone as psychologically unhealthy, but if you, have, if you have trouble with one of them, well, you know, for example, why does someone have trouble with truthfulness? Well, because psychologically they're afraid of something, right? Yeah. And, and why, why do people have trouble with contentment? Well, because psychologically, they, there's things getting in the way, these impurities, I think, that you might be talking about. Does that seem accurate? Is that how you would tie it together? Yeah. Well, when you bring in the word being afraid, what, what kind of shone out to me after having to do it all, doing, doing it, writing up the book and completing it and publishing it, is that fear is kind of the driver of everything. And, hmm. and um, the yoga, or it seems to be the opposite. That state of oneness consciousness, uh, we, we can, again, we can break it down into words like being truthful and, and being content and different things. But ultimately, it's just trusting, living in a state of absolute trust where there's no fear, there's no need for fear because there's no separation, there's no distinction. Um, but as we say, all these words are very challenging. And I, I respect that people who are coming to yoga, because, you know, I've been involved in yoga for 20 years now. And I, I respect that people coming to yoga or people who maybe have been part of another tradition and are transitioning or whatever it is, people who might pick up this book just because they happen to be in the bookshop where it's on the shelf, um, that it's not, we're not all at the same space or in the same place. And we don't all have the same conditioning or constructs in our mind. And so what an individual might get from the book might be very different to another individual. Mm -hmm. But what I think is of key importance to mention is that the book's not about helping someone to become perfect. Um, like the idea that, oh, well, I need to stop telling lies all the time or I need never to steal. Because I really, get, and you know, you can share your viewpoint on this, but I really have a sense that there is no right and wrong. There is no... Uh, absolute truth within this domain of this creation that we're engaging in. And um, there's no, even the, you know, we have got the, <laughs> the sound a bit uh, rebellious or radical here, but even though we have different authorities who are putting rules in place and different things, they are all constructs and everything is a construct. Um, and it's just when we start, uh, we, we use those constructs and we identify with those constructs in order to have social harmony and social order and different things. And that makes sense. But, um, you know, sometimes you'll see somebody in a car or even myself, I've noticed myself if I'm cycling on a bike and somebody breaks a rule and they do something which is against the rules of society. I am inclined to, or have been inclined at least to, say, call out that person to judge them or to make a criticism and then act in a way which is actually, it's actually, you know, I might insult them or, you know, say, what are you doing? Or get off, get out, you know, what you did there was wrong, but not in a manner which is harmonious and um, supportive because that person might have broken that rule for many, many different things. And I have no idea what's going on in that individual's life, but because I'm able to use the social constructs that we all adhere to, I can justify my own um, uh, action, even though my action is, I can justify it saying, well, I, at least I know what that person did was wrong. It was against this, what this social construct, whatever it might be. But my action on an inner level is against the yoga constructs of the, the, the 10 principles. And those 10 principles, those, con you know, I can call them constructs, the 10 yamas, or the five yamas and five niyamas, 
they're constructs, but they're constructs which help to guide us back to that which is not constructed, that which is beyond, that which is yoga, the state of oneness. Right. But they do that in a way to make it so that, using the idea of fearlessness, so that, so that one is fearless. And it, it reminded me of the uh, the 26 qualities and characteristics that lead to a divine destiny in the Bhagavad Gita. So that's your next book. You've got to write the 26 characteristics. <laughs> yeah, bigger book. But um, you know, if you think about that, well, um, if if yoga says uh, truth, truthfulness needs to be practiced at all times, no matter the time, place, or circumstance, yeah. because because I do think it says that at some point in the yamas and niyamas, right? Yeah. And you and and if you if you do that, you are affirming that you are not afraid of practicing the truth, no matter the time, place, or the circumstance, and so that is affirming fearlessness. Absolutely. Right. Did you, did you want to say more? Well, no, go ahead. No, no, yeah, absolutely. And even the idea of, you know, to give example, I like giving examples because I feel it just brings it more, it makes it more tangible for people. Um, a simple thing, like I take somebody. Wait, could, could you, could you, could you do it in a parable maybe? <laughs> uh, no <laughs> and my examples might, might be pushing the boundaries here a little bit too but if somebody takes your piece of cake you know and someone takes your piece of cake and then they come into the room and ask you did you take the piece of cake and you say outright no i didn't take the piece of cake and you're lying bluntly there is a fear and the fear might either be that the person's going to give you a punch in the face because you took their piece of cake or the fear might be that uh, you, you're actually good friends with the person and you know you did wrong and you don't want them to think any little of you or anything less of you. So it's just not being able to be honest with ourselves uh, mm -hmm. is the fear that, that by being honest with ourselves and presenting ourselves as we actually are to the world, we won't be accepted or loved or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so fear, I think, it really is a root there mm -hmm. of uh, a lot of what we do. But a little, a little earlier on, it, when you were talking about the idea of there not being any sort of hard and fast rules that you have to follow mm -hmm. all the time, how does that play into this idea because i was getting the sense that um well maybe sometimes it's okay but you know yeah like the, the, the this this is the paradox though isn't it because it's like it's very easy for me to say there's no hard and fast rules but at the same times we need rules mm -hmm. it's it's it, and it's you know it depends on whose ears these fall as well because <laughs> How a, a certain individual might hear the idea of, um, well, you know, it's a spectrum rather than it being on two sides. There's a spectrum of experience rather than it's either black or white. And it, depending on the circumstances, and we can get into all the details to kind of bash this out. But depending on whose ears these fall or these words will fall, it, they might be inclined to say, oh, well, that's it. I'm just I can break every rule. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what I do because, you know, I'm just being truthful to me and I'm doing it the way I want to do. But I don't, that's, that's uh, what the book endeavors to do is to start at the, uh, where we're at, or start at least in just getting to grips with what we actually understand by the word truthfulness. Like, because some people will say, well, truthful means don't tell lies. For other people, it's no, no, truthfulness means that you don't even 
take uh, something without asking somebody for something. You know, it's uh, truthfulness is down to every last detail. And other people might say, well, it's just a white lie. That's not really, you know, I'm still being truthful. I didn't mean anything bad by it. And so people kind of dress up the word truth according to what their own preferences are, their own impurities are. Mm-hmm. And so what the book's endeavoring to do is just to help the reader and the practitioner to move progressively into understanding and exposing really how they relate to the concept not the word truthfulness but the concept like what does it actually embody what does it actually um signify for them in terms of how they engage with the world on a physical emotional and mental level not just in terms of how they use the word in conversation you know Mm -hmm. So, because the, because the word itself is just a word, you know, even when we talk about the color blue, the way you perceive blue and the way I perceive blue, and we all have different variations or imaginings of what blue is according to our own preferences. And it's the same with all of the Amas and Niyamas. And then, you know, you might have uh, read certain books, been exposed to different teachings. So, when you read the word tapas, you might have a different perception as opposed to somebody who maybe grew up in an orthodox uh, religious background and they they might feel that well that idea of discipline doesn't it's not really fitting in with my uh, wanting to break away from all of that um, fanaticism or whatever it might be that they might be uh, wanting to let go of so I think it's really about how we relate to what things mean for us mm. uh, at a conceptual level and so the book aims to progressively help the reader and the practitioner to kind to peel back the many layers which are kind of wrapping up each one of these principles so that eventually they can get to an experience of the principle as a way of being rather than a principle as something that they talk about and they kind of put their own imaginings on you know right so it's helping to take them from like you said their words and their concepts uh, and the, the baggage that might be linked to that yeah. and uh, hopefully ideally move them into a direct experience of that as it relates to yoga practice, as it relates to removing those obstacles to recognizing uh, the self or the oneness consciousness that yoga is meant to, to do. Absolutely. Like when you say the self, like, the seer, the seer is beyond, the seer is beyond concept. Um, and the seer is beyond any construct and is just aware and being. And so once there's an identification with what's going on in the in, around us, it's coming from the imaginative mind. It's coming from a projection. And that projection is coming from the impressions. And all of those impressions are skewering what's actually just taking place. Um, and so we've managed to come up with language. Uh, we have, you know, we all have, we have many different languages in the world, but each one of those languages aims to help us to share this experience of what's going on. But at the same time, no, nobody can say that we all understand a word in the same way because those words are perceived and have been received in different contexts by different people, through different people with different emotional connections, different ties. So nothing is absolutely pure in in its form. It's all um, an attempt for us to try and connect uh, and make sense of things. Um, But when we move beyond the language, move beyond the word, move beyond the imagining, we can experience it as it is. And so there's no concept. 
Um, and I'm not saying that an individual who uses the book will necessarily arrive at that automatically, but the process in itself um, is a process of purification because what it's doing is it's challenging the reader to move beyond the word, move deeper into the concept and start kind of, how would I say, um, scrutinizing the concept itself. So the concept uh, the concept as it's once had been understood and recognized is now more something which is being lived, something which is being embodied through the way that they're engaging with life. Right. It, it's a big ask. I'm not sure if I, uh, <laughs> if I, you know, if I, somebody can give a review and say if they. <laughs> well, it's a, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a good idea. And, um, to have a process that actually takes people through the yamas and the yamas, I think is wonderful because, mm. you know, when I teach, um, I talk about the yamas and the yamas, but I don't spend a whole lot of time on them because I know that I'm not living the life that the person is living. I don't have within, you know, a week long workshop or uh, a seminar, I don't have time to work with an individual to figure out all of their psychological constructs. So there's kind of like, it, it, it's, it's, unless you're working very closely with someone, you have that capacity, which in my mind seems to be more of the role in these days of like a counselor or a therapist. Mm. Um, you know, there has to be some kind of trust that the people interested in yoga and meditation are actually trying to figure out how to work through and into the yamas and the yamas. Mm. Because when you come to, like I said, a week-long or a two-week-long workshop, you can talk about them, but you can't train. I, I've never found a way to train someone in the yamas and the yamas. Yeah. Now, luckily, you know, through the practice of yoga, in the beginning, we learn ahimsa. So what did I do? I tried to become a vegetarian. I quit trying to be so critical of people. I quit trying to be so critical of myself. I tried to do the things as I understood them. Yes. And as the years go by, well, now, a few decades later, the idea of harming someone just doesn't even feel right. Like it, it, It's not that I have to hold the concept and say, no, I'm not going to do this. It's like if the opportunity arises, it just feels inappropriate to, yeah. to, to not be harmless. Yeah, I, I have a question on that. Do you feel then that how you endeavored to adhere to the principle of Ahimsa all those years ago compared to now has changed? Uh, you mean how I did it? Or? Yeah, or, well, that's it. Like how, when we talk about adhering to a principle, is it about doing something or is it more about uh, an attitude or um, a perception of what it means? Well, I think one thing that has changed using Ahimsa as an example, and I would always go back to um, uh, Autobiography of Yogi mm. when um, Yogananda is there and the mosquito lands on his lap and he looks down at it and Shri Kishore says, why don't you finish the job since you're already killed it in your mind. Um, I've gone back to that often because, you know, people do ask, well, how can I be harmless all the time when there's this stuff going on in the world? And um, so in the beginning, the idea was just hold back your critical thoughts. That's one way you might still have them, but hold back your critical thoughts because that's going to be a little bit more harmless. Yeah. Um, try to eat a, a, a vegetarian diet because at least you're not, you know, murdering a whole bunch of animals consciously. You know, you're murdering some plants, but hey, you know, you gotta you gotta weigh it. Um, 
to to now over the years where it's moved into just don't even have the intention you, you know so so in my mind it's it's moved into more of like a, if there is even an intention of maliciousness like that is harm yeah uh and that has changed where it went from just do your best to not physically act it out to address the actual what what in me wanted me to be malicious in the first place and figuring out what that is and clearing that out that naturally makes you harmless (laughs) yeah and i'm assuming your book plays into that well that's it It, because it like all of that process takes uh, a lot of reflection and a lot of analysis of your your own way of being and when you were talking about that you weren't you know you there's no magic workshop that you can deliver that will just uh, help every individual attending to be able to sort out all the yamas and niyamas and have a greater understanding of them because it's it's highly personable mm-hmm. uh, it's highly personalized and subjective so in order for any individual to be able to do it they have to take it on themselves um you know you talked about a therapist if you go to a therapist, you can work through this stuff because you can. You have somebody who's listening to your every word and feeding it back to you in a way where you're able to work through it and make sense of where you're kind of finding, putting in your own blocks and work through things in that way. Um, but when we're on our own, it's very difficult sometimes for us to do that. And maybe that's the hope for certain individuals when they do attend a meditation seminar or when they do attend a retreat is that they're able to work out all the the issues in their lives and get things sorted out. But actually what is there being shared or what's been shared with them is a process which is more uh, internal, uh, something which is more, well, which is spoken about generally. But then when people apply those techniques, they're going to have their own personalized experience of what's going on when they apply those techniques. Um, And it's difficult for a teacher uh, to know what's going on when they experience all this stuff. Um, So, our whole practice, the adhering to the practice of yoga is very personable, but the part that I found I'm, I kind of fall short on was after years back, after having meditated for several years, was that I wasn't seeing in my life results which I thought were on par with how I felt my meditation was going. Later, I understood that I thought my meditation was going better than it actually was. <laughs> but this is the whole thing. It's like I talked earlier about, it's not about trying to, like the book's not about uh, the uh, how to be perfect or the way of the perfectionist. It's not about that. It's about the way, uh, the yogi's way is the way of always just being with reality, like always being with what's taking place, always being with in a manner where you're discerning what's real from unreal uh, and always being there and ready and willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And the two attributes, which are often said to be the things that prevent anybody from doing this is being lazy and being, having a restless mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the amas and niyamas, you know, if we're reflecting on them every day before we go to bed, we're, you know, without the book, even without the book, if we just sit down with each one of those and journal on it or reflect on it, and ask yourself, okay, well, how did I not adhere to each one of these principles throughout the course of the day? That in itself um, just it it helps us to become more um, attuned to being able to discern where we're missing reality, where we're actually just being in our own heads and we're in our own projections and our own imaginings and our own uh, conditioning. 
Um, and then when you, as you talked earlier about a meditation practice, how does it influence our meditation practice? Because for a lot of people, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be able to relate to this, that when we sit to meditate, if there's stuff going on in our lives that is anyways kind of gripping, as in an experience in our life, which we're in, just finding it difficult to disidentify with because, you know, maybe it's a, a confrontation we had or maybe it's something happening at work or whatever. And maybe when we sit to meditate, we don't feel like it's something that's going on. But as soon as we sit to meditate, it just kind of starts to bubble up. And then because it bubbles up, all this other stuff that's associated bubbles up. And next thing you know, we're not even able to stay focused on whatever technique we're using. And the whole meditation is kind of sabotaged. So what do we do at that point? You know, do we just throw in the towel and whatever, you know, what do we do? By following and adhering to each of the yamas and niyamas on a regular basis and using the support of this book, if you choose, then um, it just puts you in a space to not have that contamination so going on in your mind when you sit to meditate because you're already active on it. You're already discerning it as you're living it. You're already um, doing your best to stay with the real and just to... And disregard the unreal. So when you sit to meditate, you're giving yourself the space just to continue with that process rather than giving yourself a space to start reflecting on all the stuff that you've been trying to push away, you know? Right. And that's why I think your books, right. You know, as we've been doing this, I've been hacking as though I have not read the book, <laughs> but I, I have read the book yeah. just, for, just for the readers. Um, but what, what, I, what I find so, so wonderful about it is that, um, you, know, you talked about how when you sit to meditate, uh, now you're not just having to push stuff away because you're working with it moment by moment when it arises. Yeah, And that is, again, why this book is so important because you use the word impurity and the word that comes up for me is clean. It's like it keeps you clean mm -hmm. so that, you know, when you sit to meditate, you don't have to go through the whole process of uh, uh, de-stressing. You don't have to go through the whole process of um, just trying to forget about all that stuff. It's you dealt with it in the moment. Yeah. So, so that way, when you finally sit down to practice your pranayama and your internalization of attention and your focus and your meditation, it makes it easier for you to flow in this, into a samadhi state because you've attended to everything as it's happened. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that is the beauty of, of what you have done in this book and the beauty of the yamas and niyamas. And um, yeah, I just, uh, I think it needs to be something that's, that's more, um, has a little more stress, a little more emphasis put on it. Because the idea is that you talked about, Roy had said that um, a yogi will just live this way. Yeah, you know, it's, it's natural. It's natural to the yogi. And I think when a lot of people first get involved in meditation, spirituality, like they're doing it because they want to experience something that they think is is better than their normal experience. Yeah. And as though by doing that, they're naturally all of a sudden going to be able to be content, or they're naturally all of a sudden going to be able to surrender in God. But what they're missing often, not always, but often is that the way you access that state is by practicing being content and surrendering in God and so on. So it actually feeds back into uh, the overall experience. You don't do it to get those things. You do those things for the whole, the wholeness of it all. Well, that's it. And I think the wholeness of it all, you know, when we're talking about, you took the example of um, what by adhering to the principles and reflecting on the principles 
it helps us when we go to our meditation practice because then we're able to experience the awareness of greater ease. Um, but ho- like if we look at the whole picture of waking up or the picture of being able to just recognize what is absolutely real and be awakened to that, those that action of what we're doing and how we're relating to life on a practical level and an informal level, as I say, or and and then the practices we do formally, those two start to become or recognized as being the same practice. Essentially, it's a it's a a practice of surrender and a practice of just continuously letting go, letting go, letting go, and um. You had said something there that triggered a thought in my mind. Um, I'll see if it comes back to me. Um, no, it slipped my mind. <laughs> Over to you, Ryan. <laughs> okay. Well, one, one, one thought that, that, that came up was, you know, thinking of the whole eight limbs of yoga and the fact that the yamas and niyamas are in the beginning. Mm. Well, how are we supposed to experience samadhi or to concentrate if if we weren't truthful in our daily life. And so when we sit to meditate, where we have all that baggage of the things that we weren't truthful about, yeah. or if we didn't practice non-attachment, how is it that we're going to sit down and detach from all the stuff so that we can actually shift our awareness into a state of samadhi? You know, it's like when you look at the, the yamas and niyamas, their practice allows it so that your life is organized such that when you sit to meditate, now you can actually focus on what the meditation is supposed to be focused on, which is directing your awareness towards a, to, towards the wholeness or directing your awareness to your, the self, the, the absolute aspect of yourself versus all the distractions. So, um, but in terms of experience, like, you know, Samadhi is a synonym for yoga. Yoga is a synonym for Samadhi. And then yoga is defined as being the neutralizing or the, the capacity to manage and regulate everything which is occurring in the mind. Because everything that's occurring in the mind is what's preventing us from just seeing reality. Like reality is the real is, is the real. Um, but everything that's occurring in the mind is what's distorting it so making it personalizing it so we're creating our own little worlds like my world you've got your world um and then within this world you know that's that's an explanation which can be quite tricky to kind of get our heads around like there's something real that's out there and we're trying to experience it and i think when people come to yoga and to other traditions there's an idea that there's something extra that I'm going to be able to experience. And if I meditate and I do these things, I'm going to have that extra experience. I'm going to have that superpower, so to speak. Um, and getting back to the idea of surrendering and letting go, the, the yamas and niyamas and adhering to those principles and really just uh, investigating how we relate to them in terms of how we relate to our lives, it starts to peel back all the ways that we we kind of conjure up our life or experience. We kind of conjure up uh, what we're experiencing uh, and in this way create our own little worlds. So by really using these 10 principles as a framework to kind of superimpose it upon how we're living our lives and then as a consequence of that, see how we've actually 
put on so many layers on top of what's actually taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm looking out my window here as I'm talking to you and I'm seeing this tree and there's leaves on the tree. And, you know, if I superimpose the yamas and niyamas onto that and I'm looking out and I go, okay, well, did, you, you know, the, the, sen- the relationship I have to that tree is we're, it's an existing relationship. There's a, uh, a beingness which is shared, um, but it becomes complicated because of the fact that I have maybe climbed trees or I've uh, cut down trees or I've burned trees or, uh, or you, you fell know, off a tree. I thought I have, and I've done <laughs> that. Or, you know, what's going on in the Amazon and all my opinions on that. And the fact that, you know, my uncle might be somebody who uh, cuts down trees for a living, sells firewood and all these different things takes away um, the fact that the tree is just being, and I'm just being, and we're both just doing that. And so, the real is no longer the real. The real is now a load of stories, an awful lot of stories. And so the yamas and niyamas are that framework, which as I superimpose it upon my life, I can start to scrutinize how I'm engaging in life in a way where I can say, well, actually, I'm just narrating stories over um, what's taking place. And progressively, then, this helps to understand and recognize how the mind is functioning. It's functioning as something which is creating thought waves, which is creating imaginings, which is projecting on and distorting the reality and uh, preventing me from having this experience of yoga oneness, this experience of samadhi. So it's not a super experience which is outside of what we're having. It's actually all here. It's just that it's very much... it's very much about being with it rather than being in the head and being with the projections of the mind. And so again, applying the 10 principles using, okay, we've got the words, but then those concepts and really delving into what each one of those concepts is. We, as I mentioned earlier, it kind of starts to merge into the general filter uh, that we put on life itself. And that general filter you know, ultimately will just dissolve itself and be experienced as yoga. Um, I know that I, at times, sometimes the explanations, it can kind of, they can go two-ended. They can go very extreme and very far out and very metaphysical, uh, but they they can also be brought back to very tangible um, experiences. And in terms of the book, for somebody who's just starting out as a meditator or somebody who's just kind of um, trying their hand at uh, developing their own or establishing their own meditation routine, and the, all these concepts that are being offered through yoga, such as samadhi, um, uh, all of these concepts are very abstract in certain ways, but so are words such as truth. It's a very abstract concept. And so, although samadhi is a Sanskrit word, which we kind of take a while to get our head around, it's worthwhile getting our head around the yamas and niyamas, the truth, or ahimsa, satya, whatever language you might want to use, because the language and the word itself isn't what's important. It's the concept. It's what it's aim- what it's pointing to. Um, and then, understanding how we relate to what it's pointing to so that ultimately we can just understand that there is no relationship. There's, there's nothing being pointed to. It's just an experience. Um, yeah. And one, one final question uh, just for, for listeners to be, to be prepared as they go into this process, because the more I think about it, the more I, I feel like I need to make this book part of the uh, recommended reading for the, the, the Create Apprenticeship Program. Um, how many weeks 
does it take to go through the book? Because you well, mentioned 85 weeks, so we're already into a year and a half. And I thought there was quite a few. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It goes. So the how long is the Korea Yoga Apprenticeship? <laughs> yeah, two years. Two years. Yeah, it just clocks over the two years. Um, uh-huh. it, it clocks in. I, I looked it up the other day. I wanted to see. Um, there's 138 weeks. It comes oh. in at 2.6 years. Wow. That's great. In saying, in saying that, um, you know, you know, at the very intro of the book, I, I've put it out in plain because we're all individuals who get distracted. And that's kind of part of the whole thing that we do get lazy and we get restless. And as a consequence, we become distracted. This is a book that, you know, if you, if you get to week 23 and then you get distracted and, you know, a couple of weeks later you go, oh, I stopped doing that. The book is very open to you just being able to come back and start off at the same place. Um, I know that, you know, we all have different temperaments. Some people get very OCD and they go, oh, I need to go back to the start and I need to do it all again. Or, you know, and other people are more kind of, uh, well, I don't need to do a week. I can just do a day and this one, three days and this one. So we all have our different approaches, but the book is flexible in terms of, who who we are as people because it's recognizing that the whole objective is to kind of be a guide to help people guide themselves through their own understanding the nature of their mind and be able to purify everything that's kind of distorting their perception of what's going on um and so it's it it is aimed designed to go over two and a half years but uh, for some, it might be 10. For some, it might just be a bit less. For some, it might be just a pocketbook. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Always is, yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, so this book is available on Amazon. Um, let's see. The Yogi's Way, Living in Accord with the Yamas and the Yamas. I'll put a link to it um, in the bottom of the video and also in the bottom of the podcast. Uh, how do you recommend, again, for people to get in touch with you? If they if they want to get in touch with you or do some, classes I love when you then. ask me this question because um, you know, uh, ideally I'd have a website, um, but I don't have a website. But I, I do have uh, a link, a linked tree tree account. You know, okay. a linked tree. Um, so linked tree and then it's forward slash David McGrath. Okay, well, we'll put that in the uh, in the information too, and uh, this will be released before the end of two thousand twenty two, probably. Let's see, probably in October, uh, maybe the end of October. Uh, so those of you who might be living in Ireland or in other places on that side of the Atlantic, uh, Dave and I are also planning on doing um, a Kriya Yoga retreat over in Ireland uh, next fall in 2023. So I'm going to let you contact David to let you know <laughs> that, you, that you're interested in that and uh, he can keep track of it. So um, anyway, thank you for being here again, David. Uh, wonderful that you've written that book and I can't wait to hear what people have to say about it. And I have to say, Ryan, I appreciate your taking the time to read it and also to write the foreword. Uh, you, you didn't mention that, so I mentioned that. Oh, yes. Well, I didn't. I didn't want to draw attention to myself since it's your book. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Yeah. Um, It's it's interesting when you write a book uh, for any of your listeners who are writing books, there's a reliance on, on others. (laughs) Yes. You're, you're not really up until that point, you know, you know, you rely on people for different things, but when it comes to writing a book, you, 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 uh, call on people for their other skills and it's interesting yeah. yes proofreading and forwarding and uh, yeah. blurbs and all of that yeah the yeah. list goes on 
It does. It does. So thank you for your support and help. Thank you. No problem. Well, thank you for being here and uh, we'll see you sometime soon. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.